Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Gilbert Baker was an openly gay artist and literary agent in New York City in the late 60s and early 70s. He was encouraged by his friend, Harvey Milk, who was the first openly gay politician elected to office in San Francisco, to come up with a symbol in the mid-70s to represent the gay community, a symbol around which they could rally. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Genesis 6 through 9 and the flood. What is the sign of the everlasting covenant after the flood that God gave to his people? The rainbow. That has become a symbol for the gay community in a different way. Baker then designed a gay pride flag in 1978. He said this, our job as gay people was to come out, to be visible, to live in the truth, uh, and as I say it, to get out, the, get out of the lie, from under the lie. What he meant by truth was stop living in the shadows and live as you are, are openly. A flag really fit that mission because that's a way of proclaiming your visibility and of saying, that's who I am. The colors, originally there were eight, pink for sex, red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight, green, you might expect, for nature, turquoise for art, indigo for harmony, and violet, not violent, but violet for spirit. It has since been reduced to six, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. We are facing a crisis in our nation. The builder generation that is older than I that goes from 1913 to 1945, some call it the great generation, Estimates are that 1.3% of that population are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, or queer, and that is a term that they use. Boomers, my generation, it goes up to 2%. Gen X, from 65 to 79, it goes up to 3.8%, three times the number of the builders. The millennial generation that goes from 1980 to the end of the, uh, what millennium would it be, the second millennium, 9.1%. Friends, the, y genera- the, the uh, Z generation, they estimate that it is at 16%. That's eight times my generation. We face a crisis in this nation. Why? Well, the scripture says that homosexual activity is sinful. And many in our society say that it's not, that it's normative. It's not sinful behavior. But Paul is very clear in this in Romans, the first chapter, in verses 26 through 28, talking about how men and women have departed from God's plan and creation and his order. He says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is natural, unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts 
shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see to fit, fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Today, friends, bluntly stated, I think the plain sense of it is, we live in a depraved society. Calvin didn't know the beginning of the meaning of the depravity of the human soul. You know, I have gay pride. I have gay pride when a gay person chooses to be obedient to the Word of God. You see, this isn't about gender identity. We talked about that two weeks ago. Gender identity is when a person's understanding of who that person is, their gender, deep inside their soul does not match their body, and they have gender dysphoria. This is not about that kind of gender dysphoria. I have gay pride in a person that has gender conflict in their life, and yet they still remain faithful to Scripture. This is not about sexual orientation. Sometimes people are attracted to the same sex due to genetics or gender dysphoria or social conditioning even, but it's not about this. It's not about identity and it's not about attraction. I am proud of a gay person that though they are sexually attracted to the same sex, refrain from homosexual activity and are obedient to the Word of God. This is about homosexual behavior. It's about activity. It's about acting those feelings out and to make them normative in society. The traditional biblical view, I think we all know, is that it is sinful behavior that has resulted from the fall. It is unnatural behavior, as Paul talks about in Romans 1, that defies the nature of God's order at the beginning. And Scripture clearly condemns it as sinful. There are two solutions if a person finds himself bound by gender dysphoria or conflicted, and that is very simple. There may just be a cure that begins with a spiritual transformation. And if the cure is not coming soon, there is also celibacy. The progressive view stands in opposition to that. They say, this is not sinful behavior. It is not a result of the fall. It's permissible behavior. And in God's diversity of the rainbow, those activities, in fact, do not displease him. You see, to deny this freedom is unnatural. And it causes pain and suffering from people that are frustrated and denied that opportunity of their, to gratify their homosexual desires. They say that the traditional position which we would hold misinterprets Scripture, and in fact they have nothing that needs to be cured. It's perfectly fine. There are four kinds of passages in Scripture we're going to go through very quickly this morning that address the problem. The first has to do with incidents in Scripture which point out the sin of men lusting after men, and by extension, women for women. Genesis 19, Judges 19, and Jude. How many chapters in Jude? Jude, chapter 1. Genesis 19 is, of course, about Sodom, where the men of Sodom wanted then to call out the angels that were visiting Lot and to know them. And what that means is to have sexual relations with them. In Judges, the 19th chapter, a Levite has, chap uh, has traveled to Gibeah and has his concubine there. And the men of that city then want to call him out and have sexual relations with him. And Jude comments on that 
it says that this of Sodom and Gomorrah was nothing less than gross immorality as they pursued strange flesh. That's the first block of passages. The second block of passages are in the Levitical Code, specifically, which prohibit homosexual activity. Leviticus 18.22. It is called there an abomination for a man to lie with another man as a man should lie with a woman. And Leviticus 20.13, male homosexual acts are detestable in the sight of God, punishable in the Levitical Code in that day by death. I'm not advocating that solution today. We're in the new covenant. There are preachers today who believe that should be done, and that is unimaginable. The third block, homosexual activity that violates God's natural order, and that's what we read from Romans, the first chapter today. And then there are a couple of passages from 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, and 1 Timothy, the first chapter, that include homosexual activity in the list of vices which we are to avoid. Let me lay out the case for homosexuality first. They would say this, God's blessing is available for same-gender relationships, that is, homosexual activity that acts itself out in homosexual behavior. There are rational arguments behind this. First, the natural argument. People are born that way and cannot change. Now, the old argument used to be, no, it's a matter of conditioning. I think that we have discovered over the past couple of weeks, it is both. Yes, people are born that way, but there are others that are conditioned by the culture around them. Evidence of being born that way, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there is a problem of brain wiring sometimes that does not match the body. There are also hormonal imbalances. They're even discovering, they think, that it may also, in some cases, be a matter of birth order of males by the same mother. There are many factors that may be involved. There's also this difficulty problem. If a person finds himself with gender dysphoria, can they change like that? No, they can't usually change like that. In fact, it is very difficult to change at all. Now, we may not like to hear that, but scientific studies have proven this. Medical studies have proven this. In a survey of Exodus, a group of people that intend to become not gay again, and they struggle with this, they did a survey, and they found that about 23% of those people, after a period of about six years, struggle out of their gay, their homosexual activity, but many of them then end up being bisexual. A Mormon study of its church members found that only about one-tenth of one percent of those that struggle to come out of homosexuality are successful in it. I know that we believe that if a person comes to know Christ, they can be transformed, and I know that he can make a complete transformation, and it can be instantaneous, but the fact of the matter is there are many gay Christians that struggle lifelong with this, very much like others do with other addictions. There is the moral argument that it's not a sin, it's not a result of the fall, that in fact God encourages diversity and he's not displeased. And I mentioned this a moment ago. There is also the philosophic argument. And how many times have you heard this about postmodernity? Relativism says truth is my truth and my truth is it's fine and therefore it is not against the law. There's the emotional argument. Everyone Everyone needs love, and if I'm wired for that kind of love, I have that right. Don't deprive me. That leads to the legal argument. Everyone is entitled to love, 
and within the boundaries of the law, we are allowed to do so, and the law allows homosexual activity, and therefore it is right. We should not discriminate in any form or fashion, and I believe we should not discriminate against people, but we should speak a discriminatory message against homosexual activity. There's the logical argument. Well, celibacy might be one of the solutions, but you see, celibacy is illogical. The Bible doesn't emphasize celibacy. The Bible doesn't call, call most people to celibacy. And in fact, when we try to practice it, we just suffer. Then there's the experiential argument that we mentioned last week, and that is there is evidence that they're committed Christians, sincere Christians who practice homosexuality. Those are the arguments. When a person from the progressive uh, position interprets Scripture, they look at it differently than most of us. They look at the Scripture through a different lens. They would say that the Old Testament laws were culturally conditioned in their day, and those cultural conditions do not apply today. That some of the sex laws that are in the Old Testament were specifically for Israel and only for Israel to keep Israel separate from pagan society and those sexual activities in pagan society. They would say that the ancient world had no concept like we do of modern homosexuality, that same-sex activity was normal in Greek and Roman culture, especially between older men and adolescent boys, a tutor-pupil relationship. It was a rite of initiation, and that masters had slaves for that specific purpose, and there was nothing wrong with it. They did not have a concept of homosexual lifelong committed relationships as we do today in modern society. And they would say that when the Scripture speaks against that kind of homosexuality in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's not talking about what is occurring today. They would say that the biblical opposition to homosexuality focuses on those aberrant behaviors, homosexual rape, man-boy relationships in which the boy grows up to be a man and continues to enjoy it. Male temple prostitution linked to idolatry, licentious orgies. So that is the kind of homosexual activity that the Bible is speaking against, but not the what we would call, they would call normative homosexual love today. They would look at the Scripture and say when the Scripture talks about unnatural behavior in Romans 1, they're talking about behavior that was even outside the pagan norms. They would say when you look at the New Testament, Jesus never explicitly prohibited homosexual activity. And you summarize all of this position. What they do is they frankly look at the Scripture this way. Through a social, cultural lens, and because society accepts it today, it is okay they would use what I would call a reader response hermeneutic. You see, the Bible is speaking to me, and the Holy Spirit then allows me to interpret the Scripture according to the way God wants to speak to me in an experiential way. And it leads to these kind of arguments. Take a look at those four kinds of passages. The incident passages, that is in Genesis 19 and Judges, the 19th chapter. Sodom and Gomorrah and Gibeah. They would say that what the Bible is speaking against there is homosexual rape, that these men were expressing their homosexuality inappropriately. And by the way, those stories in the progressive view, most people would say, are mythical. They're there simply to teach moral lessons and not to condemn homosexuality. That the motivation of the men, both in Sodom and in Gibeah, was this. They had an alien group of men that had come into the community that they wanted to expel, and they wanted to punish them, that they hated them. Jude's um, 
take on this, when he calls it then gross immorality and strange flesh, they would say that Jude is talking about an uncontrollable desire when it talks about that kind of gross immorality. And, and homosexuals today should not have uncontrollable desire. They would say going after strange flesh was that they were going out after these aliens that had come into their community. And so they explain away Judges 19 and Genesis 19 and Jude. The second block, the Levitical Code. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination, Leviticus 18. If therefore a male that lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both, the, both of them have committed a detestable act and they should be put to death, Leviticus 20. They would say abomination and detestable act, they're related to the same word, are technical terms that have to do with ritual impurity that what is being spoken about here is male prostitution connected with idolatry. And what the Levitical Code is doing is saying, don't participate in that kind of activity because it's like the pagans, what they do, and it will lead you to idolatry. These laws then are not against modern homosexual behavior. You see, what it did is it prevented Israel from becoming idolatrous like the Canaanites who practice those things. You take a look at the third block, and that's what we read this morning. It's not a block. It's one scripture, Romans 1. You see, it is a violation of God's natural order. Their women exchange their natural function for that which is unnatural. We read a moment ago. Verse 27, men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, and it was men committing shameful acts. They would say about this, that the context is not against God's natural order, Genesis 1 through 3. It's not against the binary relationship that we spoke about three weeks ago, the one flesh relationship. It's not about Genesis 3 in the fall. It's not about God establishing a timeless rule that we should follow. Rather, this whole passage about, is about God's impartiality. It's about Genesis 1 through 3. Paul's purpose is not to condemn specific acts in Romans 1. It's to show typical kinds of pagan acts because what Paul is doing is he's setting a trap. Chapter 1 talks about the pagans, but by the time he gets to 2 and 3, he has sprung the trap. The pagans are like this, but guess what? You're no better. You do the same kinds of things. And the point of this passage is don't be judgmental. Don't be judgmental against the pagans who do these kinds of things. Don't be self-righteous in your own right because your sin is just as bad. In other words, the application, interestingly enough, would be this. Do not judge homosexuals today or you're being judgmental. You see, these unnatural and shameful acts do not refer to modern, loving, committed homosexual relationships, but they're about aggressive, exploitative behavior male prostitution, debauched behavior at licentious parties, man-boy relationships that were prevalent in pagan society, and those things that were unnatural that resulted from that. And that is that sometimes the adolescent boys grew up, in fact, to be desiring to be the female partner. You see, there's an assumption behind all this with a progressive position. Most of them will say that there are three perfectly normal kinds of sexual activities. Heterosexual, which is the majority, but there's bisexuality and there's homosexuality, and those are not in the majority, but they're permissible. They're in the minority. You see, society accepts these today. We are enlightened today. We have come to understand that they are normal. 
And after all, when you look at verse number 27, Paul does not call this sin. It's, he calls it a mistake. They receive the due penalty for their error, for their mistake. So it's not a sin, but it might be viewed as a mistake by the majority. Then we come to the vice lists. The vice list of 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1, the law is designed for which kinds of people? Immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. They would say this, those two terms that I have mentioned, that is, effeminate and homosexual are not talking about homosexuality of the 21st century. You see, malakoi doesn't really mean effeminate. It means soft ones. It can be interpreted to mean male prostitutes or slave boys or those with loose morals, but it doesn't mean the kind of effeminacy that comes sometimes today with homosexuality where you have a, a man that plays the role of the woman. The other term which has to do with homosexuals here are sinakatai, it's a long one, it's a four-syllable Greek word, does not mean homosexual. It means bed, uh, men bedders. It's a unique term that we do not find outside of uh, Scripture up to this point or even in Scripture except in one place. They believe that Paul coined the term, and what he was addressing was temple prostitutes or possibly pedophiles, but he is not talking about current homosexuality. Paul's purpose in these vice lists, they would say, is this, not to focus on specific sinful acts, but that when we have freedom in Christ, what we must not do is become licentious. When we have freedom in Christ, we should not become like those pagans that practice all of those exploitative, aggressive, and idolatrous activities. And none of those are like the modern loving homosexual relationship. And then to cap it off, they say, in fact, there are scriptural examples of those who lived a homosexual lifestyle. And I am hesitant even to say this because it offends me to hear it. But they would say, for example, Naomi and Ruth, that Ruth clave to Naomi, that when she's committed to stay with Naomi the rest of her life and to go wherever her family is, that this is virtually a marriage vow. David and Jonathan, that they loved each other deeply, and then Jonathan takes off his robes and gives them to David, and you know where that, that leads. Da Daniel and Ashpenaz, the Babylonian official who was a eunuch. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And then the centurion that Jesus heals his servant from afar in Capernaum. There is an assumption that they make that the centurion had a man-boy relationship with that servant. And so when Jesus heals the servant from afar, and he does not condemn the centurion, but he says, of all the people that I've ever seen in Israel, you have the greatest of all faith. In fact, he's not condemning, but he is affirming the centurion. Wow. The case for homosexuality. What is the case for the traditional biblical position? God's blessing is available in sexual relations only for those in a binary one flesh relationship that we call marriage. Sex is God's gift for marriage. It's based on God's timeless order found in Genesis 1 and 2, and it is a binary male-female relationship, a one-flesh union that unites those opposites that come together complementarily. 
to fit each other out and to complete each other, that procreation is one of the main goals of marriage along with companionship, and that in fact Jesus endorsed that kind of relationship in the New Testament, and he did. The biblical position as we understand it is that all sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. Homosexuality, yes, but also fornication, adultery, bestiality, or any other variant. The biblical position as we understand it is that basically homosexuality then being a sin is a result of the fall. People with different gender identity or sexual orientation are not sinful by nature. God is not displeased for them because of the way that they're wired. God loves every person in their diversity, wherever they feel like in the rainbow of colors. He is pleased. He is proud when they keep his law, despite the way they feel. But homosexual behavior is sinful. It undermines God's creative order. It openly mocks the male-female relationship that God established from the beginning, and it undermines his purpose of procreation for all of creation. The remedy, frankly, in Scripture is twofold. It is one might be cured through spiritual conversion and a commitment to change, but the journey is tough. Taking up one's cross to follow Jesus Christ is very, very difficult. Or celibacy, and this is not normal, that's true, but God must give a person the gift of celibacy. And some, as you do, as you know, he does. Anything else short of these things biblically is wrong, regardless of the justification. Regardless of relativism, that does not make one's individual truth right. Regardless of the emotional argument, that doesn't make unbiblical gratification right. Regardless of whether it is legally right, it doesn't make moral disobedience right. Regardless of the sincerity of a person, it doesn't make their sincerity convert what is wrong to right. The traditional hermeneutical approach by those of the biblical position are that the Old Testament moral laws from the Ten Commandments that are built upon that are still valid. The purity laws and the separation laws have been fulfilled. Yes, they've been superseded. But the moral laws of the Old Covenant that are not connected with those that are connected with the Ten Commandments are still in effect. All sex laws, not just some, but all sex laws applied not just to Israel, but to everyone, and they're still applicable in the New Testament. There's manifold evidence of that. The ancient world did not have a concept of homosexuality as we define it in the pagan world, but guess what? God gave them one. It did exist in ancient times. It is what Israel said God said, and they found it in the Torah and in the law, the law and in the prophets. You see, this was God's purpose, was to use Israel as a light to the world, as salt and leaven to transform it, so that they might move away from unnatural and shameful acts and be obedient to his word. Most biblical prohibitions against homosexuality in the Old and the New Covenant are explicitly addressing that sexual act. Not about idolatry, although it's attached to it. Not about male prostitutes, although it occurred in male temples, but they're about that sexual act. Jesus' silence on homosexuality in no way condones it. In fact, he exclusively affirms the heterosexual relationship found in Genesis 1 and 2, and that negates homosexual behavior. And folks, they miss the obvious. Jesus did not come 
to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. He lived every day of his life celibately. He lived according to the Levitical code. He never broke it. And that is a huge statement in the life of the Lord himself that homosexual activity is in fact unbiblical. The biblical arguments on the traditional side are these. The incidents in Sodom and Gomorrah are not mythical stories. The real issue there is sexual passion. Even if they did hate the men, how did they choose to express it? Through inherently wicked behavior. They had already been described in Genesis 13, six chapters before, as inherently wicked, and the basis of their wickedness was their sexual immorality. And Jude makes this very clear. In Sodom and Gomorrah, they were grossly unmoral, and that word does mean unchaste. When they sought after strange flesh, it, the word is heteros, interestingly enough, ironically enough, from which we get heterosexuality. Yes, they were heterosexuals, but they were seeking, and the word heteros means those of a different kind to bed. The story itself is partly about homosexual sex. Sodom was not judged entirely because of that. There were other reasons too, but they were judged also for that. You see, the basis for this is not the Torah. Hmm. Sodom and Gomorrah were not judged based on the law. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged based on what? Had the law come in Genesis 19? No. What was the paradigm? It was Genesis 1 and 2. It was God's created order. And even the pagans, Paul says, should know this when they look at God's creation. The Gibeah story mirrors Sodom. And it goes on then to condemn assaults on women. The Levitical Code, the second block, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, when it speaks about abomination and detestable acts, yes, that is a word that is used to condemn ritual impurity, to oppose idolatry. But it's also used in several other places in the Old Testament about moral sins. And Leviticus 18, in fact, the condemnation of homosexuality, is a moral sin alongside bestiality, adultery, incest, and child sacrifice. Progressives wrongly mix cause and effect here. When they say, oh, well, those laws were just about idolatry, and incidentally, they, they had homosexual behavior. Yes, Israel was to be separate from the pagans because they were idolatrous, but they were also to avoid these sins because the sins were wrong. The practices were inherently wrong and bad for them. Sexual sin was not necessarily a product of their idolatry, and idolatry was not necessarily a product of their sexual sin, although they were related. You see, the progressives inappropriately mix these two causes. Pagans did sinful things, and the Israelites were not to do those sinful things, and God, he condemned what? Both idolatry and this sexual sin. You see, the Levitical Code clearly confirms is confirmed by the vice list that we find in the New Testament. And God never condones homosexuality in the New Covenant. Thirdly, the violation against God's order in Romans 1. The pagan acts that are described here violate God's eternal order, not just the Torah. When you look at the passage that we read in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it almost mirrors Genesis 1 where it talks about creation. It's very obvious that talk, Paul is talking about a universal truth that the pagans can know even without reading Scripture. You see, it's pagans have suppressed God's truth in unrighteousness. 
And in that, what they're doing is they're suppressing his order for binary sexual relationships, the purpose being procreation. They have overturned God's natural order. Homosexuality obliterates the distinction between male and female difference, and it perverts the very image of God. When you blur male and female, when you say there is no real difference between male and female, we forget that we are created in God's image, male and female, and we subvert that image. Paul addressed here in Romans 1 the broad problem of homosexuality and calls it what it is. It is a sin. Not just specific acts like temple prostitution, man-boy sex, male prostitution, and orgies. And on top of it, what else does he say is wrong here? It's not just male to male. He's very explicit. Lesbian activity as well is also wrong. And you know what? The progressives rarely address that from Romans 1. And then we finally come to the vice list, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Effeminate means what it means here. Progressives are, are wrong when they limit it only to temple prostitutes or slave boys for sex. We see this in Greek and Roman culture. Philo uses this term when he does describe men who voluntarily abandon themselves in adulthood, not as an adolescent recipient, but in adulthood, they continue to pursue the effeminate role in homosexual behavior. And Philo says that it is wrong. It's not connected with temple prostitutes. It's not connected with slave boy sex. Juvenile and Roman literature speaks about in fact, these kinds of effeminate people that gather together in groups and have their own communities, and it's not the slave boy sex. It's not the, uh, the, the tutor pupil sex. It is grown adults who had tight-knit communities, sexually active with one another, very frankly, folks, like the LGBT community today. And he, and he says, Juvenile says, that this is an unusual and wrongful sexual desire. Homosexual in this passage, that word there, is wrongly interpreted by the progressives when they say that it is temple prostitutes and pedophiles. It's a unique term. You don't find it outside Scripture before Paul, but there is one place that you do find it, and it's in the Septuagint version of the Levitical Code in Leviticus 20. And when they translated the Scripture into Greek a couple of hundred years or less before the time of Christ, they used that very same term that Paul uses there in the vice list to describe homosexuality in Leviticus 20. It is a term that describes a man who sleeps with a male. In fact, folks, this confirms that the Levitical Code continues in the New Covenant to condemn homosexuality. There is a continued opposition in Paul's use of this term because he's referring back to Leviticus, the 20th chapter. There are no biblical examples that condone homosexual relationship. I don't think I need to say much more about that. David and Jonathan, Naomi and Ruth, Daniel and Ashpenaz, we know what those were. Those were filial relationships. Those relationships between brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters that ran deeply, one that was closer than a what? Than a brother. And there is absolutely no reason to suggest that, that Jesus condoned homosexuality by healing the centurion's ser servant. It's uncorroborated. We don't know about the centurion's sex life. 
What we do know was that he was obedient to Christ and he had great faith. The summary of this position, I would say, is this. All homosexual activity, unequivocally, Scripture says, is sinful. Not orientation, not gender dysphoria. There are several biblical passages that we have referred to that explicitly condemn this behavior. It's not about committed, consensual, homosexual relationships being permitted in the Bible because only those aberrant behaviors are condemned by the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah were punished for their homosexual sin, but they were also punished for other sins. But it doesn't get them off the hook in terms of their sexual behavior. Non-biblical sexual orientations exist. There are people today, friends, and we know this, that struggle with gender disorientation. There are people that struggle with attraction to the same sex. The Bible does not condemn that feeling. It doesn't condemn that orientation as long as it wasn't something that they generated out of their own lustful desires to begin with. And where do we draw the line there? We are not the judges. Same-sex practices offend God, but not uniquely. Fornication does too. Adultery does too. Bisexuality does too. And sometimes we say that, sometimes people say that from the other side. Well, you know, if fornication is good for the majority, then homosexual is okay for the minority. No, it doesn't excuse it. If a homosexual person is saved, God can change their behavior. He can change their orientation. But for whatever reason, he may not choose to do so. He may call them to continue to carry their cross and to work toward being transformed in his image completely. What they should choose to do, according to Scripture, is to live faithfully according to his word. And if they enter into a sexual relationship, it should be in what context? In marriage. And that marriage should be heterosexual. Otherwise, they should remain celibate. Now, I know that these are hard words for some to hear. They're not mine. Oh, yes, a lot of what I've used to describe are my words. But folks, when we look at those biblical passages that I quoted, and when we read those, those passages say, thus saith the Lord. So how do we apply this? Let me make four observations very quickly. I think we need to p treat people, all people, with dignity and not slogans. What do I mean by that? Sometimes the way we treat this is we say, oh, love the sinner, but what? Hate the sin. Well, you know what that does, folks? It's almost like a slogan. It's almost like a shibboleth. What we're doing is we're, we're treating people as sinners. And, and I get it. Everybody's a sinner. But our primary relationship with people isn't to look at them through a judgmental eye and say, I know you're a sinner. What did Jesus say about that? Look at your own self. Look in the mode in your own eye. No, we, I think, need to get away from that attitude. And we need to not just love the person. We need to affirm the person and then we need to disaffirm. We need to disaffirm their sin. Love the person, but disaffirm the sin. Be careful in this, I think, too, that we don't presume to sympathize. I have never walked in the shoes of a gay person, and I don't intend to. I cannot sympathize. I cannot imagine what a person goes through. I can empathize, but I've said this before. There is one 
that calls them to yoke themselves to him that can carry their burden. And he does sympathize because he has been through every temptation as they, yet without sin. I think secondly, we need to take seriously the gravity of this sin. I know that sin is sin. I understand it. I know the consequences of every sin is death. But frankly, folks, we know this. The consequences of some sin are graver than others. This one, friends, is grave. We are at a crisis in our nation. It threatens to undermine God's created order, and it threatens to tear the fabric of society apart. Look at the statistics. In just three generations, going from an estimated 1% to 16%, what's going on here? Don't tell me that all of a sudden that many more people are naturally born that way gay. Well, some would say that it's always been there. It's just now been uncovered. You know what's happening. A lot of this is socially conditioned. A lot of it is because it's socially acceptable. A lot of it is because of young, impressionable adolescent minds are encouraged by their peers and even their teachers to seek another gender. It's a cool thing to do. Take this sin very seriously, friends. Pray earnestly that God will roll it back. Thirdly, oppose social normalization. Never should we discriminate against a homosexual person. But we must never capitulate to the marginal, yet vocal, and misled minority. I think the phrase is, the tail wags the dog. We should never capitulate. We must stand for the Word of God. No matter how close the loved one is, friends, it's very tempting to give in and say, well, that's okay. No matter how sincere a gay Christian is, it's tempting to give in and say, well, if they're a Christian, then it must be okay. No matter how caring a person is, it's still not right. Homosexual behavior, like any other sin, still offends God. And then finally, I would say, we must teach our children. These precious children that we saw marching down the aisles today, we must teach them. We have children in the congregation this morning. There's a certain age where they need to be exposed to this. They need to be told the truth. They do not need to hear a harangue about homosexuality, and I hope that's not what this has been today. They don't need to hear all the descriptions about homosexuality they need to understand what it is. But the focus doesn't need to be on the counterfeit. The focus doesn't need to be on that which is false. We must teach our children what is right. Teach them the right thing. Model the right thing. And heterosexual, loving, mother-father relationships that raise them according to the ordinances of God so they see it lived out. And then when they have questions, and they will, as they approach adolescence and they go through that period in their, in their life where, where their gender identity is finally being mature and it doesn't finally occur, it doesn't finally then come to maturity until, until their mid-20s. So for about that 10 or 15 years, we need to walk beside them and teach them and encourage them and remind them that what they see in culture is not the normative pattern established by God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 
1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.